0: You are listening to The Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond.
1: Hello, everybody. In the first week of March, all eyes will be on Long Beach in California when it plays host to TPM24, the biggest logistics and trade show of the year. It's also exciting times for the port right now. So I'm delighted to welcome to this Freight Buyers Club News Insight episode, Noel Hassi gabba Chief Operating Officer of the Port of Long Beach. Welcome, Noel. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Noel, I was doing my research and I found some quotes from your good self dating back to Q3 of last year, predicting that the U.S. west coast would see more traffic heading its way in the coming quarter. The push factor that you identified then was delays and restricted capacity on the Panama Canal due to low water. Since those comments, not only are those restrictions in Panama continuing, of course, but we've also had the sewers crisis, diversions around the Cape, We've also had this union threat that shippers tell me is very worrying and is making many think the U.S. West Coast is the path of least risk versus East Coast options, which of course is a turnaround from, say, a year ago when when that union boot was on the or the coast's foot, I guess, if I can put it that way. Is this a moment of opportunity not only for the port of Long Beach, but maybe for all West Coast terminals, do you think?
0: Well, the the short answer is yes, with an exclamation mark, Mike. And I'm grateful that what I said in Q3 of last year is actually materializing because when you look at our container volumes here in Long Beach alone, January marks the fifth consecutive month of positive year-over-year trends. And that followed 13 consecutive months of decline. So, so far since October of 2023 through January, 2024, here in Long Beach, California, which is the nation's second busiest container port, uh, we've seen some increases. Now, I will say this, what I didn't anticipate is what is happening at the Suez Canal and how the shipping lines have to circumnavigate through the Cape of Good Hope in order to get their shipments. What I also didn't anticipate is how long the, the drought conditions and its impact on the Panama Canal capacity would persist. But when you combine those two factors together and you consider that the Suez and the Panama Canal together handle 25% of the world's seaborne shipping goods, there's no question that there will be some circumnavigating, there will be some contingency planning, and that will bode well for us here on the West Coast.
1: Are you being able to put any numbers on sort of forecasts for this year? Are you extrapolating from January or do you see that more of a a push as the year progresses?
0: When you look at our volumes, we are experiencing and seeing year-over-year increases, but keep in mind that 2023 compared to 2022 and 2021 was a down year. And that's because the pandemic-induced supply chain crisis artificially inflated demand. And so we ended 2023 right in line with 2019. And you could say we picked up where we left off before COVID, we were about five percentage points ahead of 2019, but I think it's too early to say what the actual impact of the disruptions in Panama and the Suez Canal vis-a-vis the Red Sea is here on the west coast and i say that because we have seen some increases mike but not to the degree that one would expect and i have a couple of theories one is when you look at the capacity constraints imposed in panama by the canal when you went from full capacity of 40 transits a day down to 24 and this month to 18 that reduction has primarily impact non-containerized vessels so the containerized uh, ships that continue to transit the Panama Canal for the most part not 100% but for the most part continue to transit through. And then on the Suez side, we have seen some movements by the shipping lines to try to address that and account for the longer voyage across the Cape of Good Hope in the sense that some of these uh, shipping lines are chartering additional vessels to try to compensate for the resources that they've redeployed to that area, but that hasn't materialized specifically to container volumes here yet. However, if the issues in Panama and the Red Sea persist, there's no question that we're going to begin to see an uptick in container volumes in the months ahead.
1: I'll just give our listeners a little bit of background there about what's happening in Panama. Most meteorologists have been attributing the, the lack of rain in the second two quarters of 2023 to the El Nino effect. Now, we're now into the traditional dry season in Panama, so most predictions are that we're not going to see a huge improvement, certainly for the next few months in Panama. One of the things that people had done to address that problem was they'd been offloading, they'd been moving more by rail, but they'd also been moving more via Suez Canal, which then, of course, was caught up in, in conflict in the Middle East. So we've got this convergence of disruptions, I guess we could call it. Have you, you meaning the port, but maybe you can also speak for your, your stakeholders or cargo owners. Have you been surprised by how quickly events in sewers have led to those rates spiking on the Asia-US West Coast trade? I mean, it all happened really quite quickly, didn't it? Spot rates at least.
0: I'm not surprised, Mike. I, you have to keep in mind that the supply chain crisis that we all lived through the last couple of years is still very much in our rearview mirror. And I think in a way, the immediate reaction to the disruptions both in Panama and the Suez Canal with what's happening in the Red Sea, it was part and parcel of of how we were uh, navigating uh, some of these challenges the last couple of years. So I think the awareness and and the experience that we all went through is what put us in a position to be more uh, nimble and and more responsive to the needs. But let me also offer this. What's gonna be important, and I think going forward, I think it's too early to say that there's, there's a trend that's building here. But what's going to be very telling is in the next couple of months, as the shippers uh, negotiate their, their service contracts, that's what's going to give us a better sense of what we may anticipate for the balance of the year. Because right now, shippers are reacting to the disruption. They're looking for ways to, to manage through, whether it's Panama or the Suez Canal, And so there's a lot of different options on the table for them, and they're they're availing themselves of all these different options. But once they negotiate those service contracts with the shipping lines, that's going to indicate uh, where those longer-term shipping trade routes are going to go and how much of that is going to be diverted to the U.S. West Coast.
1: That's that critical tender season on the Trans-Pacific where a lot of, well, the vast majority of cargo moves on long-term contracts from Asia into the U.S., And that's ongoing at the moment. And most of those contracts would start probably around about the 1st of May. So then your your view is that we'll then see a lot more transparency on what's driving these trends that we're seeing the the beginnings of at the moment.
0: That's correct. And, And by the way, a lot of that negotiating between the shippers and the shipping lines happens at TPM, right? During the conference that you referenced at the beginning. I would also add this. So in addition to the issues in Panama, the Red Sea, Suez Canal, Another issue that could sway cargo to the West Coast is a lack of certainty on a labor contract on the East Coast. And that also is another factor that shippers are going to have to contingency plan for. And they're going to have to consider that factor as they negotiate these uh, service contracts with the shipping lines.
1: That's the ILA contract with the East Coast port interests. Um, That was my reference at the beginning to the union boot being on on the other coastal foot now, Harold Daggett, the president of the ILA, has threatened strikes at the end of the year. And, and I know, and if anyone wants to reference this, I did interview uh, General of Commerce, Mark Zirconi and John Gold of the National Retail Federation, who both had a very strong views, particularly John, that as these contracts, these this new tender in season for the Trans-Pacific came through, that that would be a major factor in driving in traffic more towards the West Coast, because we've been here before, haven't we? You know, You've suffered this yourself when you've been going through this with the ILWU on the West Coast, any hint of risk and people will move their cargo? I mean, right now, the US West Coast,
0: here in Long Beach specifically, we're open, we have capacity, we're ready for additional business. We spent the last several months working with all of our industry partners, from the marine terminal operators to the ocean carriers, the railroads, the trucking companies, to ensure that we're ready to handle any surge in cargo. And I can tell you this, we're ready. And you've got that union agreement in place from last year as well, which must be a a big relief. Exactly. And I'll say this as well. The moment it was announced that there was agreement in place, uh, we started noticing some of the shipments uh, come back to the West Coast. So we believe with all these other factors, Panama, Red Sea, the issues on the East Coast, all of that will swing cargo in our favor. And so... Right now, we're we're doing a lot of uh, preparation. We're checking in with all of our industry partners, making sure that the equipment is in place, making sure that we've got the systems in place so that we're ready to handle that cargo, and give the assurance to the shippers that if they do move the cargo back to the West Coast, they can uh, rely on our ability to handle it.
1: If we just uh, dive into that a little bit more, uh, what's the key for you guys in terms of avoiding the disruptions that you did me- mention there during the pandemic when there was quite a lot of congestion at, at LA Long Beach? I mean, I guess question really is what have you been doing in terms of investing to improve flows or working with stakeholders to, to boost port productivity?
0: Well, during the pandemic, the supply chain crisis, we were in triage. mode. There was a lot of low hanging fruit that uh, we have availed ourselves of. One of the immediate things we did, Mike, is we repurposed and activated vacant land within the port when the supply chain crisis hit and all these ships we were bringing all these unanticipated containers when the shippers went from just in time to just in case. At one point, we had 109 ships at anchor that were waiting for a berth to become available so that they can bring those ships and drop off those containers here. And so what was happening is the container terminals were chock full. There were containers that were stacked everywhere. In fact, if you asked a container terminal at the time what their capacity was, They would have told you they were at about 120% capacity. And so by activating vacant land inside the port, we put them in the position to shift all those containers to a nearby facility so that they could make more room for all those containers aboard the ship. So that was one of the first things we did. We started with 20 acres. We ended up activating over 100 acres and that provided immediate relief. The second thing we did is we worked with our container terminals and we urged them to become more flexible with their operating hours. So over time, all of them started opening up at night, on weekends, they started opening up earlier. In the absence of physical capacity, by expanding hours of operation, it opened up the windows for those ships to come to berth and move those containers. And that was extremely helpful, but I'll tell you what, there was a third tool that we used. It was not the most popular, but here in Southern California, the forts of Long Beach and Los Angeles, we announced a fee, we called it the long-dwell container fee, where we were essentially levying an additional fee to the shipping lines for those containers that stayed on terminal longer than nine days. Thankfully, we never had to impose a fee because everyone stepped up. It was all hands on deck. Uh, the White House, uh, Department of Transportation convened meetings with all the stakeholders and together we were able to manage through that situation. So to make a long story short, Mike, because I can go on, Please do, Uh, please do. We we learned a lot. Uh, There were a lot of lessons learned. And and in fact, one of the lessons we learned was it's time here in the United States for the supply chain to go to 24-7. It doesn't make sense that here in Southern California, the nation's largest gateway, almost 40% of our waterborne imports come in through LA and Long Beach. It makes no sense for us not to be 24-7. The ports in Asia and their entire supply chains are 24-7. We have to be able to match that in order to accommodate growth in the future. And so what we learned as we expanded hours of operation here at the port is we also need the warehouses and the distribution centers to be open 24-7. We need truck operations to be available 24-7. So that is definitely one of the lessons learned is is we've got to get to a 24-7 supply chain. The other lesson learned is just how glaring the lack of visibility was. Uh, We spent half of our time here at the Port of Long Beach, making sure that all of our partners uh, were aware of when the containers would be discharged, when those ships would be arriving. There was a, just a glaring gap in visibility and, and awareness of, of data. So we launched in January of 2022, a new digital initiative that we call the Supply Chain Information Highway. And Mike, the objective is very simple. We just wanna get the data in the hands of our industry partners and our shippers. We wanna put them in a position to know when their container, where their container is across the voyage, and when they can send in uh, their motor carriers, when they can uh, book an appointment to go collect the container. So it's an important investment from our standpoint to ensure that the supply chain has access to the data they need to make real-time, actionable decisions, And in the end, we all benefit from efficiency gains. So those are just two examples of things that we learned and things that we continue to pursue long after the supply chain crisis.
1: If you have another surge of cargo like we were anticipating, is very, very possible looking at some of these early volume figures. Are you satisfied? Okay, obviously there's things you're still trying to improve, but are you satisfied in the here and now that Stakeholders are on board. That crane moves are sufficient. That the working hours are right. That the warehousing will be available. The drayage is good. The railroads are on board for a, a surge in cargo. Is are you happy that you're ready to go?
0: We are in our conversations with everyone you just mentioned, from the railroads to the motor carriers to the terminals. Everyone's telling us that they're ready. We have capacity today. We're in contact. We know that the equipment must be here, and so I'm very confident that having gone through what we all did the last couple of years, that any surge that comes our way, we will be ready to handle.
1: Well, Noel, hopefully you'll come back later in the year and, and, and give us an update about how that process has all gone. That'd be great to hear from you again. If we may just look a little bit long term, China plus one, if we see more cargo gradually coming to the US from other countries, maybe in Asia, how are you viewing that trend as a port? Are, are you seeing patterns of opportunity in terms of this near-shoring, friend-shoring? Is this a net positive for you or if more cargo goes to Mexico, maybe it's a net negative?
0: Well, so far we haven't seen anything, uh, any material change, Mike, as it relates to our volumes, but we are tracking that very closely. Near-shoring in particular is something of great interest to us. I was in Mexico City last summer, visiting with the, the Mexican officials that oversee the Mexican ports, and looking at the possibility of collaborating with the Mexican ports. And the reason why is because a percentage of e-commerce product that comes to the Port of Long Beach ends up in Mexico and it arrives into our port and trucks transport those shipments into Mexico where they are warehoused and they are staged. And then eventually in order to fulfill e-commerce transactions, that cargo ends up coming back, so we're looking at different ways to leverage this growing trend toward nearshoring. I think it's too early to to say what the impact's going to be from a percentage standpoint, but it is happening. We are seeing it now. The ship from China to Southeast Asia is something that's been in the works for some time, and recent disruptions, whether it was the supply chain crisis or the U.S.-China trade war that occurred in 2017-2018, those factors accelerated that shift from China to Southeast Asia. So that's something that we continue to monitor. That we don't think will have any impact to our cargo volume simply because of our close proximity to Asia. And whether it's China or Southeast Asia, a lot of those shipments will continue to come to America uh, via our gateway here at the Port of Long Beach.
1: No, Al, I was doing my research as a diligent journalist. should. I know you guys are doing Quite a lot of exciting things on the decarbonization front. Can you explain to our listeners a few of those projects, please?
0: Absolutely. Uh, we're proud to be the very first green port. a bold declaration that was made back in 2005. And since that time, Mike, uh, we have been successful collaborating with all of our industry partners to reduce all categories of pollution by as much as 96%. And we are now in the third iteration of what we call the Clean Air Action Plan, which encompasses the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles here in Southern California. And we have the two most aggressive goals uh, as it relates to decarbonization. By 2030, every piece of equipment, cargo handling equipment, will be zero emissions. By 2035, every truck that enters our port complex will be zero emissions. We are well on our way to meeting both goals. We've been very blessed and fortunate to receive historic amounts of funding, both from the state of California and the federal government to help us in our transition to zero emissions. Uh, But so far, 22% of all cargo handling equipment here in Long Beach is zero emissions already. We've got 200 trucks that are zero emissions today. We're building out infrastructure to support that transition. We've got a goal of 100 charging stations for battery electric trucks within the next couple of years. And just recently, we were notified by uh, the Department of Energy that California, which includes the ports here in Southern California, will become a, a hydrogen hub. So we're doing everything humanly possible, Mike, to do our part, to facilitate the transition to zero emissions. And we're also part of green shipping corridors, along with the ports of Singapore and the ports of Shanghai, the first of its kind. And these types of partnerships are instrumental in ensuring that the ports on either end of the supply chain and all of our partners we connect with are rowing in the same direction. And we are aligned when it comes to fuels, milestones, goals, and key metrics. So we could not be more excited about where we are and looking forward to continuing our work there.
1: Well, I wish you the best of luck driving that uh, transition to net zero. Noël Hasegaba, Chief Operating Officer at the Port of Long Beach, thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club.
0: My pleasure, thank you.